1: Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. I really am. This is a great day. We got a legend in the house today. Someone that started, he taught himself code at age 17, as just deep in the software space industry, and just created a a hedge fund as well for uh, B2B buying software companies, taught all the legends in the game, really has a best-selling book right now buy back your time and I'm just excited to see the breakthroughs that come from that with so many other people but you know bought and sold multiple companies throughout the years had a couple that failed so we'll we'll hear about the learning curves on those but many more that has excelled and just crushed it in in so many areas so really excited to have you on today but without further ado Dan Martell what is up my friend how are you today
0: I'm doing awesome, Brand. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I've I got a few stories and ideas that I think will serve folks starting off that want to, I don't know, become the best version of themselves. That's kind of the way I see life, right? We want to yeah. become the 10.0 version of ourselves and and then share that person with the world.
1: Let's go. Let's go. Dude, you, first off, congratulations. You got a, an amazing a McLaren getting dropped off in just a little bit, right? That's always exciting.
0: Yeah. I got one to match the book.
1: There you the go. 120S. Yeah. Yeah, let's go. Match the shirt, match the book. It's going to wrap out pretty nice. But anybody out there that doesn't know more about your story, who you are, your upbringing, and so forth, do you mind just giving that 30,000-foot view for us?
0: Yeah. I mean, my story's kind of unique where I actually grew up in kind of this crazy environment. I, I ended up addicted to drugs when I was 13, ended up in jail twice by the time I was 17 or 16, and then almost took my life in a high-speed chase. And it was you know, in this crazy moment where I ended up crashing into this house that I went for a handgun and for whatever reason it got stuck. And, you know, the cops eventually opened the door and grabbed me and pulled me out. And, you know, I woke up sober the next morning in a jail cell. So that's kind of a crazy kind of my teenage years. And then what happened is I eventually got released to a rehab center and it was in this rehab center. I did 11 months of therapy and like worked on my personal worth and like my self-esteem and the trust I'd lost with my parents and kind of rebuilt the relationships with my family. And I was helping Rick, the maintenance guy, at the end of this program. I was there for 11 months. It was built on an old church camp. We were cleaning out one of the cabins. And in one of the rooms was this old 486 computer and a yellow book on Java programming. And I just opened it up. And I don't know, for whatever reason, it spoke to me. And I just followed chapter one instructions. And within 20 some minutes, I got the computer to print out Hello World and thought, huh, maybe this computer stuff's kind of interesting. And it became my new addiction, man. I just went all in. I literally went from being addicted to drugs to being addicted to code. And then I got out 1997 timeframe and discovered this little thing called the internet and yeah. you know, entrepreneurship kind of took hold and it became Kind of my personal development program is like the ultimate way to get better was to try to start companies. And I just struggled for years, literally. I think it wasn't until I was 28 that I finally found any mild level of success. And, mm. uh, and that's when my whole life changed to some of the achievements that you kind of mentioned.
1: Yeah. What, what area did you grow up in? And what? East like- Coast
0: of Canada in a province called New Brunswick, a city mm. called Moncton. Okay. And.
1: How did you get into drugs? Just like anybody, right?
0: (laughs) You know, I think it was like going into high school. My buddy Richard got into them over the summer. And I remember he had, I don't know if like hash was a thing in the US, but he just had some stuff. And I lived in a neighborhood out in the boonies and he gave me a little piece of it. And then I kind of got all my buddies in the neighborhood together. We went into our tree fort and that was the first time. And, yeah. you know, what happened for me, man, it's just, I just dealt with so much like emotions. Like, I, you know, I've been in therapy since I was 11. I was diagnosed with ADHD. I had attention problems and focus and getting trouble at school. And there's just something that felt, it was like a way to essentially not feel, right? To numb my emotions. And it just got, it got a hold of me, man. Addiction is a real thing. And I just, like everything I've done in my life since then, I just went all in and you know, ended up hanging out with guys that were twice my age, you know, started selling drugs, started moving drugs. You know, it was kind of like as a young kid, my life kind of looked like sons of anarchy, kind of yeah. motorcycle gangs and being in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely relate. I had an explosion in my apartment making hash oil.
0: <laughs> well, then you know. Yeah.
1: So I, I was literally on fire. I burnt 40% of my body was induced into a coma for a full week, had to go through three surgeries and learn how to walk again. So like that stuff was really, that was real as hell for me and a big eye opener because after having an explosion in your apartment in California, you know, you make the news, but you also make the headlines for the cops. And so getting on house arrest and, and that whole thing was it was a hell of an experience but exactly what i personally needed like with my personality type to be able to get on the right track right so i'm sure with your personality type too was was there you know that experience with having the gun jam and such a you know a crazy kind of chase and everything like that's what you needed most likely to be able to stop what, what was going on and uh, put you on the right path and thank god
0: yeah, it, it, yeah. like that was and, and i part. know you're a person of faith just just like myself. And I don't think I really had faith back then. It was kind of like, you know, got in trouble. You know, it's kind of that jelly roll song. What's he called? It's like, I turn to God only when I need a favor or something like that. Like, yeah. that was my spiritual kind of maturity back then. But, you know, what happened was actually while I was in prison, I got in a fight and got thrown in the hole for three days. Ooh. And on the third day, I had a guard named Brian kind of take me out and was super disappointed about the fact that I got in a fight because I was trying to do good and get out of there, right? Get out for early, whatever. And he walked me into the guard unit and sat me down and, you know, just kind of started speaking to me in a way that I'd never heard any adult share with me. And his it was his belief in who I was as a young man and my potential and how disappointed he was that I got in that fight. And that that's good. He honestly didn't believe that I belonged there. And mm. that That was the moment where internally everything shifted, kind of the identity, right? Like, where I was like, well, Brian thinks this, maybe, (laughs) maybe there's more there. And uh, that was the beginning.
1: That's good, man. I love that. So, talk to me. You found coding out of all things. Why coding, first off? And and how did it kind of transform into the companies and businesses that, that really took off for you over time? Because I know what it yeah, didn't I mean, happen all at once but over time.
0: No. You know there was just something about writing software that mm-hmm. kind of created this like repeatability, this consistency that just felt almost therapeutic because like sure in the software world you you write the code and as long as you don't touch the computer and it's got power it will do the same thing forever, right? Yeah. And I think because I grew up in so much chaos that just the calmness of i don't know i just became like i would get into flow state and just write code for 3 4 5 hours i would stay up till 2 3 in the morning my dad literally would watch me sit at my desk and and his his agreement with me was if i finished a book that there was an unlimited budget to go buy another computer book so we'd go to the bookstore and go to the computer section and you know i'd buy books on on database design and website stuff html and yeah, it was pretty magical having his support and just some kind of passion. And then obviously the internet, but it was, yeah, you know, I didn't know what it was. It just writing code just became my, you know, in today's world, I feel like they call them high value skill. Like it was just my thing. Right. And then, and then I was always entrepreneurial. I was just doing stuff that was illegal. So yeah. my dad would beg me if I could just find something that was illegal. He'd think I'd do something with my life and turns out he wasn't too far off. That's good. I like
1: it. So, what was that first break for you? Like, what was that first job experience or or business that you really started running with? that actually yeah. took off for you.
0: Well, so it was crazy. So, I started at seventeen. The first company I started was called NB Host. It was um, sorry, it was Maritime Vacation was the first one, which was a vacation rental site, which you know Airbnb, VRBO. But this is like back in '98. Yeah. And I built it because my dad had a cottage and he had friends and they were like, Hey, we need this web page. And I was like, Well, let me build an application that lets you upload your own photos and create your own listings. And that was I, I lied to him and said it would cost me like six hundred bucks to build for him, but I just needed that money to pay for the server. So I had like a place to play, right? Sure. But I didn't know anything about business, man. I didn't know, I just I just was you know, I think we made like twenty eight thousand dollars total in the whole history of that company. I literally created direct mail spam to bed and breakfast owners that were looking to have a website, and I just like direct mail, like, and yeah. I mean, not nothing fancy, like literally just you know mail merge on my computer and you know stamp and fill out a form, but. Then I did NB Host, which is a hosting company, because you know a lot of people that build websites eventually go, well, I should host these websites, and then they'll pay me fifty bucks a month, right? It's a lot better than doing sure. project work. So that was a good start, but we ended up growing way too big, too fast. I was the technical guy, so I spent most of my time in a server room freezing my butt off, right? Because this is back, like it's so funny back back in my day. You know, we literally had to buy hardware, install software to run your website, not like today where you just have like cloud services like Amazon. But it wasn't until I was 24 that I started a company called Spheric that I finally understood the business side. And the reason why is I'd read the E-Myth. It was one of the first business books yeah. I ever read by Michael Gerber. Yeah. And I decided as... I, and I didn't even read. I listened to it while I was driving for eight hours. I decided I'm going to hire a business coach. Okay. Now, didn't have the money, didn't even have a business. And I you hired this guy named it, right? Bob... <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah.
1: so you didn't know where to find somebody.
0: Yeah, well I reached out to Emith and they they sent okay. me to one of their people.
1: Cool.
0: Yeah. And Bob paid him 1500 bucks a month US. Okay, I'm Canadian. Real money. I'm 20. I was 23, almost 24. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you even have the business? And I'll tell you man, Bob showed me how to See, I was smart enough to do the work, but I didn't understand how to build the business. Yeah. So Bob was the business guy, but he didn't understand the technical stuff. So mm-hmm. literally, I just listen and execute. I have a very small knowing doing gap. If you tell me, Hey, Dan, you should do this. And I'm like, Oh, that feels good. I just do it. I don't, I don't act to fear or judgment or whatever. I'm just like, I don't give a shit. It's probably because of the crap I went through as a kid. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm living on borrowed time. So like yeah. some people are like, why do you take so much risk? You're such a risk. I'm like, um, no, this is not risky. Like, do you want me to tell you what I used to do? That yeah. was risky. That yeah. always got me shot in the face. This, yeah. this is just normal. This is business stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, so Bob showed me how to build it. And the company went from zero to a million in the first year. And Let's then we go. just kept growing and growing and growing. And I became a millionaire at 27. And I'm yeah. talking cash in my bank account. Like my accountant called me once. He's like, Hey, you want to hear something cool? I was like, why has got You got a million dollars in cash in your bank account, like yours. And I was like, "Yeah, that good? I literally didn't know if that was good. Yeah. He's like, yes, Dan, that is good. You should celebrate. I'm like, well, I'm busy. Hang out the phone back to work. Like yeah. we're, we're building. And uh, a year after that, I ended up selling the company to a US firm, made me a multimillionaire, retired for a little bit. I lasted about eight months <laughs> and then I decided to roll the dice a little bit and see if any of my crazy ideas, you know, would hold water in, you know, kind of the the land of technology of Silicon Valley. And I ended up moving to San Francisco and in the heart of it. And that's where I built two more companies, Flowtown and Clarity.fm. Both were venture backed, raised millions of dollars, exited those. And it's kind of nuts cuz I think I was like 34. I was 34 cuz it was exactly 10 years. In a 10-year period yeah. People don't understand how close they are to winning. Brandon, oh, people yes. are literally, yeah. you know, it's like the bamboo tree. It's like yeah. under the seed takes five years to like germinate and kind of grow. But once yes. it cracks the earth, it'll grow like 50 feet in yes. six months. Yeah. I literally went from like seven years of like 17 of trying, trying, trying. Like my dad was like, you should just get a job. I'm like, no. Got to build, got to build. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And at 24, I started my first company, and by the time I was 34, I had built, scaled, exited three software companies. I and I just tell that to people because I think humans are really good at linear growth, but they're not good at exponential. And sure. there's no way if you just wake up every day to try to be better, that you can't create this compound growth effect. You just gotta not reset all the time. A lot of people get wins and then they reset. They have a great year and then they give it all back the next year. They make well, a lot yeah. of money, they lose yeah. money.
1: Yeah, it's just like your accountant, for example. Though the average person would say, like, "Hey, you just made a million dollars. Like, let's celebrate." And and it's like, no, bro. I'm like, I'm in the hustle right now. I'm not stopping at this. It it wasn't the goal wasn't to get to a million dollars and be done. You know.
0: And No, at to- that time my my goal was fifty million. Like, I literally yeah. set a goal five years, fifty million. You know, team size, global. I was very clear. Like, I, I read Good to Great. You know, shortly after the mm. myth. And and again, I'm just the kind of guy that like. I'm, I'm what's called in, in the, in the internet space, there's a bunch of different type of archetypes of customers. Sure. There's the dreamer. And then there's the, the, you know, they got to be convinced. I'm, I'm a, I'm a frustrated builder. If I want to do something, you just got to tell me what I need to do and I just go do it. So I read the good to great. And he talks about, you know, having a vision for the company and being very specific, right. Right down to like number of employees and location. So dude, I had this pitch deck, this, this, PowerPoint that I created that was like 10 slides, and I would show it to my team every month. I'd show it to every new hire. I'd show it to my partners, show it to my customers. It's like, this is what we're building. We're here on the timeline. And if you come in and work with us and help us, like I just was very clear about what I was building and always have been, right? Because I think that it's such a powerful thing to be able to point to the future and, you know, call your shot. But and know, like, hey, that's far out there, but that's okay. We're just going to wake up every day and try to get 1% better. Yeah. And over time, you just create this momentum. It's a powerful force in the universe.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. So, over the years, you built a couple of companies, you've exited for great numbers at the end of the day, multi-millions, and you've had a couple that have failed along the way as well, right? So, I feel like we learn a lot off of the, the things that didn't go well just as much as off of the things that did go well. But anything that you could share with us as far as the companies that, that didn't make it and some of the reasons possibly why?
0: Yeah, I mean, the first one, I'll be honest with you, Maritime Vacation, it's because I thought too small. Yeah. You know, I started this company. <laughs> the domain was maritimevacation.ca. So right off the bat, I was pigeonholing myself into Canada. My vision was I'd be nice to have 30 listings. That would be magical. 30 listing would pay my hosting fees and a little extra to live. And, you know, some guy in Toronto in Ontario had a bigger vision and it was called at thecottage.com. And yeah, I got some early traction, but I also didn't have a bigger vision. So I didn't invest much in it. And all of a sudden the guy from at the came in and offered a better product at a better price. And all my customers left. Right. Yeah. And that was like. That was the lesson I took away from that is no matter what I do, I always start with a vision of world-class. I use that language often with my team. It's always global in potential, act local, right? doesn't matter what I'm doing. So I'm always trying to create a repeatable, scalable model that over a long enough time horizon, it can be big, but I just make sure I don't make the mistake of making a decision today that would make that almost impossible in the future. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does.
0: I like that. Yeah. So, so that was Maritime Vacation. NB Host, you know, what I took away from that experience, which was a web hosting company, is selling a commodity and trying to compete on price is a bad way to build a business, right? Mm. If you want to go out there and trade salt and cement and corn and, you know, all these other commodities, go for it. It's just what I've learned in business is you almost want to, race to the top, right? Every business I'm in, I want to be the best, I want to charge the most, I want to be a premium experience. I don't want to race to the bottom. I don't want to compete against Walmart. I don't want to compete against the low-cost provider. I want to be the differentiated, value-add, innovative company, let's call it Apple, Nike, etc. Because it's just a funner place to operate from. So, yeah. NB Host was a great lesson learned. Me and my brother lost about 10 grand each. At 20, 20 years old, 2021. And um, it was a great experience in understanding, you know, you know, selling things with high margins, right? I don't do anything today other than some real estate projects, but for the most part, 80% gross margin minimum, right? Ooh. Software is 87%. You know, my coaching's in that same ballpark, 85%. So to me, it's like, you know, deciding to be the best in your thing. And charge a premium is way funner. So you might start simple, a lot of people starting lawn mowing companies or glass cleaning or whatever. But the vision should always be to be the premium provider in your space, not the lowest cost one, which I think a lot of people make the mistake when they start because it's it's how they compete. They're like, why should I use you? We're the cheapest. Well, you don't wanna be the cheapest. You wanna charge the most and then use that resource to create the best experience and the best outcome and find the customers that care about those things.
1: Yeah, I, I think overall, like having the experience and that world class type of like one of a kind is how you really stand out, right? And you get the word of mouth spreading as well. But when everybody goes cheap thinking, you know, it, it's really a limited belief, I feel like, thinking that everybody's gonna come to you. But when you have that cheap product, you're also getting a, a cheaper type of mindset and and more problems, right? I- the The investor that gives me, you know, two hundred, three hundred thousand, versus the guy that gives me twenty thousand, it's a big difference. You know, the three hundred thousand investor never reaches out. and you know, a year later is okay with whatever comes back, versus the twenty thousand is going to keep on asking, right? So it's really understanding those uh, that different type of tier. I wanted to ask you about the software companies you're buying. Multiple. You you have sixty plus at this point, but you're buying. You have a hedge fund at this point that you are raising capital, and you're buying uh, multiple businesses left and right. You have a SaaS academy as well. You've you've trained up some of the best in the industry. Wanted to hear more about like what does that vision look like, and how did that kind of you know come to fruition today?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Steve Jobs at it best. It's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. I mean, what happened for me was, I think I was 30, it was right after I sold Clarity. So it had been, yeah, it was about eight years ago and I was in San Diego kind of, you know, again, semi-retired with the family who just started having kids. And my buddy Travis says, you know, you should consider, you know, teaching everything, you know, and putting it on YouTube. Like, you know, I like listening you know, he listens to me. He's like, you know, I love your ideas on this. It'd be great if you could like, just share it, just record yourself. And inside of me, it kind of was like, kind of made me nervous. Like I was like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't want to be YouTuber. And you know, one of the things I've learned a long time ago is that when I am scared, I should listen to myself, sure. like listen to my gut. So in that comment, he made me second guess. Like, Maybe that's an area I got to go develop. Like, why am I so nervous about this? Why am I so anti this? Like there's maybe my next level of learning how to communicate better, tell stories, teach people, build massive teams is gonna be on the back end of, of this concept of, of you know, sharing everything on YouTube. And I made a commitment and I said to myself, I will post a video every week for the next decade. Mm. And true to my word, I haven't missed a week in eight years. Every Monday I post the video. Think we're gonna crack hundred thousand subscribers this week. So it took a while. I'm not doing Mr. Beast videos. These are, you know, very tactical software, you know, retention product development, like very nerdy stuff. But it's one of the largest YouTube channels for software as a service or B2B SaaS. And that seeded the idea of of coaching, right, and teaching other people. So SaaS Academy started about five years ago and become Largest coaching companies in the world on the back end of the YouTube channel. And then about a year ago, I started to think okay, well, I'm already doing angel investments. So, you know, I've got like That's 60 insane. different investments in software companies, $4 billion companies like Intercom and Hootsuite and Udemy and many others. But I thought, well, I'm helping these clients, you know, scale and exit. So we've had 38 exits in the last year, but like, why don't I buy them? Right. So I reach out to one, it's funny, one of my coaching clients, Kevin, he was working on another fund that I was an investor in, an LP. And he decided he wanted to start something new and different. And I asked him if he wanted to be business partners. And essentially we went, we raised 70 million in capital. I put in the balance with Kevin. And now we buy. So we're more private equity than hedge funds. So we buy and hold software companies, you know? And so pretty much my day is spent. Teaching everything I know—that's one of my core philosophies, right? Becoming, you know, the best version of me, and then sharing that person with the world, and then looking at deals and talking to really smart entrepreneurs and helping them kind of fix and correct their software companies so they can grow faster and, you know, create incredible wealth for their families so they can do cool stuff. And that's that's been my journey.
1: Yeah, in some of the academy, some of the people that you've helped out. Do you mind listing off some of the people and like what that has done?
0: Yeah. I them? mean, in my clients that have been in my program, and these are people that are kind of public on my website. Russell from ClickFunnels. So I work with Todd and you know, rest in peace. Dave passed away, but I worked with their team. I worked with Alex at Hyros, you know, and they just exited for 110 million. Ryan Levesque, who's got his product bucket. I've got, you know, Garrett J. White and his whole warrior Ooh. app stuff. Who else? Ryan Dice had a software company from Digital Marketer, is an incredible entrepreneur. And honestly, many others. Anybody that's kind of like in the online space that has a software product, either I've coached them or they've come into my community and and taught. You know, like we just had Sean from Go High Level, who a lot of people know uh, recently, come into my high end private mastermind. And yeah, I just literally, because we have a thousand clients, like the truth is, I just don't know anymore. You know, I'm not. I run the company and I have, you know, an executive team and a senior leadership team. And then we have, you know, I think 14 coaches or something. So it's it's a pretty big organization. So sometimes I work with people I'm not even sure I'm working with until they tell me.
1: I love it. So what is the goal? Like what what are you guys doing with buying some of these software companies? You're you're buying them straight up and then looking to either rebrand them or or grow them.
0: There's a hundred reason people sell a company, right? Sure. So we try to Buy a, a decent company with good fundamentals, right? We have like 13 different data points we look at. And then depending on the situation, we might bring in a CEO to operate it, but usually we want to essentially increase the recurring revenue and fix the retention problems right out of the gate, typically, what we call revenue retention. So we're always trying to increase net revenue retention as fast as possible. And then just set up the infrastructure in the team so that it continues to scale. I mean, the beauty of Software. And I think why the valuations are so attractive is because if you build the company right, it becomes an annuity. You know, over years, this thing continues to grow and continues to compound and is incredibly profitable. So we'll probably buy, you know, 15 to 20 companies over the next three to five years. And that portfolio of companies, you know, we can either keep it or bring it public, but it's, you know, left to be seen what we do with it. But the vision is to, Essentially, build you know a multi-billion-dollar revenue base of software companies over the next you know five to ten years. And then
1: buy and hold those, unless it's a... yeah,
0: just keep them. Yeah, bring them public. I mean, I'm not saying we wouldn't exit them for the right sure. situation, yeah. but you know, our vision is more buy hold. It's definitely buy hold for the you know for our capital, and then but you know we're not going to say no if there's a strategic that that wants to bolt our stuff onto theirs. For sure,
1: when it comes down to some of those thirteen moving pieces that you guys are looking at, do you mind like listing off a few that maybe some of the listeners could? I, I can
0: share consider. them, but they're kind of tech, they're nerdy software they're nerdy. things, right? So yeah. we look at we look at NPS score, right? So net promoter score. We look yeah. at average revenue per customer. Okay, so it's called ARPU, average revenue per user. We look at CAC payback period. So how much does it cost to acquire a customer? How quick can we pay that back? Meaning, divide the amount of costs by the gross margin. We look at net revenue retention. So on mm-hmm. an annualized basis, you know, you have a cohort of people that start in January, that cohort of people what did they pay that month? What percent what what revenue do they pay at the end of the year is it, you know, 80% revenue retention or is it 130% revenue retention? Those are dramatically different things. But those are just examples. So we have 13 and we kind of score them red, green, yellow and, you know, for the most part it takes a majority of those to be, you know, green. <laughs> And there's some of them that are non-negotiable in regards to the, uh, the structure that the founder or the CEO is looking to exit. Right? So there's certain types of scenarios that we will do and some that we won't. And that's how the investment committee meets. You know, We look at 100 deals a week, we whittle it down, we put them through this kind of sheet, this, this scorecard, and then uh, meet an investment committee and try to put together some LOI, some letters of intent that we think are fair and try to find the opportunities where we match what the founders looking for as a partner.
1: What what is the typical range of like,
0: you know, like the deal size what we're buying?
1: Yeah. And yeah, and we'll percent, probably spend between of what it's 15 valued, to
0: 25 million to acquire a company. Okay. So they're and probably doing 1.5 to 3 million in EBITDA. Okay.
1: And then what kind of discount rate are you looking for to actually Buy, or are you buying them at value so that you can...
0: Yeah, we're, we're competing against the market. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, as much as I love to think that people would sell yeah. me their company at a discount because of my, my good looks and my hair, yeah. it's not, it's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. We, but I mean, there's deals we'll do that other people won't do because some of them just want to buy companies that are going to cash flow. And we're, sure. we're looking to essentially like value add in the real estate game, they would call it that. But yeah, we're totally open to coming in and you know taking over a company and fixing the demand generation and the sales conversion and the retention strategies. I mean, it's just essentially what happened was all the playbooks that I built to coach my clients. Kevin was a client, so he saw this library of like we have these six core functions, and you know we have I think over 400 growth playbooks that we execute in each one of these models. This operating system for scaling software companies. And that's essentially what we do. We we buy a company and we kind of put them through the scoring system and go, okay, well, here's the things we're going to do. We call the first 100 days, right? It's like in the first 100 days, this is the playbook. We fix pricing, we fix retention, we fix demand gen, restructure the team, we keep the A players, we get rid of the C players. Um, It's in the private equity world, it's very normal. But for a lot of entrepreneurs, maybe they've never heard this before. But there's we essentially have a playbook that as soon as we buy a company, we run them through the first hundred days and we have it's systematic. Like there's no, there's no emotions. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are emotional about their decisions. And one of the questions a lot of my private clients I coach, I always ask them this question, which is if somebody bought your business that knows your industry tomorrow, what's the first thing they would change? And why haven't you made that decision?
1: That's good. I like that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, to myself, like what would I do differently? I'm going to write this down. What would somebody change right
0: this. off the bat? Yeah. Knowing like no personal opinion about team players or customers or commitments you've made in the past. Somebody buys your business. They want to make it better. What's the first decision they would make and why haven't you made that decision yet? That's
1: good. I love that. I'm going to selfishly take that for myself.
0: <laughs> it's yours. I've got yeah, hundreds. <laughs> My favorite thing is... See, and, and I just want to say this about questions. Because if people are listening, they were like, Ooh, I like that. Here, here's the thing is, if you think about thinking, thinking is nothing more than asking a question of yourself and answering it, except most people don't perfect and or refine their questions. So mm. they don't work on collecting and identifying really powerful questions. Because if you prove the quality of your questions, it'll improve the quality of your life. Right. Oh, so sure. one of, yeah, one of the things I've done, I've gotten really good at is just to distill every area of a business into questions that uncover the real thing that needs to be focused on to have it scale. And I just think it's... A lot of people work on motivation and habits and routine and all those things are important. But at a certain point, it's strategy and strategy is on the back end of a great question.
1: I like that. Dan, talk to me. How did you come up with the idea of writing the book, Buy Back Your Time?
0: (laughs) Yeah. This, This book is a passion project gone silly. Okay. So what happened was everybody that comes around me. Okay. So like the people that are around my life are are confused how I do so many things, right? Because they're like, how do you train for an Ironman? You've got two boys that are Irish twins are 11 months apart. You have a wife. I see you go on date nights, you go on quarterly retreats, you go on, you know, almost, I think we did almost 12 weeks of vacation last year. You run two, you know, I have two eight-figure companies that I'm CEO of. You know, you invest. Like, how do you do all this stuff? And I would try to explain it to them. I would unpack it and I would show them kind of the way I think about my time and I look at leverage and I quantify things. And it was just through this process over the years of coaching so many people, the first thing I had to do is help them get the time to then go do the work. Most people are already operating at max capacity, right? Mm. When they come to me, it's not like they're sitting at home doing nothing. They're like, busy. Yes. <laughs> and I call that the pain line, right? They're, they're operating at a red line that if, if anything more got added to their plate, they would explode. Usually hey,
1: for, look, look, for agency companies, it's about
0: like 12 to 14 employees, about 1.5 million in revenue. For software companies, it might be a little different. But yeah, I, I usually get the call when that happens. And I designed this whole framework called the buyback principle based on the four master skills of leverage, right? Which I'll just mm-hmm. name them quickly, but it's... It's content, capital, code, and collaboration. And to the degree that we get really good at those four master skills of leverage, we can build incredible outcomes for the same amount of time because we have a force multiplier, which is leverage. But most people have never been taught this stuff.
1: And so, talk to me when it comes down to people being busy, you know, I feel like in today's society, everybody can hold up that flag saying, you know, I'm busy. Do you find that a lot of people are kind of BS with their time? Their their time management is totally off. They're prioritizing, you know, scrolling on on social media or watching Netflix or whatever it may be. Even with the high level net worth individuals that are like coming to you for coaching and so forth. Obviously, we're all busy, and like the, the high level people are still putting in some work. But it's really what we're prioritizing, and there's more than enough time in the day. Would you agree?
0: Everything comes down to the leverage you create per unit of hour put into your day. It's very, it's simple math, right? Like sure. you're going to wake, like average person is going to work 2000 hours. Okay. Yeah. You generated income. Okay. After you like, like, just, like you know, discretionary expenses, whatever. If you just think of like all the money you made, your salary and or your profits distribution, whatever. Yeah. And you take the 2000, that's your effective hourly rate. How much value you create per hour. So people that have higher leverage and more output are folks that know how to leverage their time, which means they take money and they reinvest it to buy back their time to go do things that create more leverage, right? Yes. And the framework I teach is called the buyback loop. And the idea is my job is always to try to buy back my time to go do things that one, light me up, that I enjoy doing, that I want to do. Because if I don't enjoy doing it, I won't keep doing it. And two, make me more money. And so if you think about a simple calendar of things that are red or green and $1 sign or $4 signs, it's like I'm trying to take all the red and $1 sign stuff out of my calendar, put it into a bucket and give it to somebody else, hire somebody, buy back my time, to then refill it with things that are going to create more value and light me up that I enjoy doing. Mm. And that's why... I tell people, like my mission in life is to create a movement where we help companies you know, and entrepreneurs build businesses they don't grow to hate. Because what happens yeah. right now is they keep building till they get to a place where they hate what they've created. And then they decide to either stall, sabotage their success or, or sell the business. And I really think it doesn't have to be that way. It literally can be that the more successful you are, the more free time you have. Now, I'm not saying that I don't, I'm not an advocate for the Friday Work Week either. The subtitle of my book is, you know, get unstuck, reclaim your freedom, and build your empire. Because my definition of an empire is a life of unlimited creation. You never have to retire from. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wrote the book is because I was trying to buy back my own time yeah. from having to teach my clients and teach my friends this process. So now it's like, here it is. I spent two and a half years writing this book. I've researched it. I, I had incredible case studies and frameworks, and it is one of the most powerful books on time management ever written. Because I had to do it for myself. I can't. You can't build venture back companies and have balance. And you know, unfortunately, you know, I was in a relationship, and my my fiance at the time left me, and that. You know, it was my wake-up call to get better at this, and luckily, I met some incredible mentors, you know, in Silicon Valley. And I understood how do these twenty-some-year-olds scale companies of hundred million in revenue in four or five years? How do they do that? Well, yeah, you know, I wrote about it in the book. So, talk to us, like,
1: share some bits and pieces in the book. How does somebody actually start buying back their time?
0: Yeah, I mean, the core framework is the buyback principle, which states we sure. don't hire people to grow our business; we hire people to buy back our time. Because if we do the second, we get the first. But if we do the first, we definitely don't get the second. Does that make sense? It's a it does, yeah. cap, a capacity versus calendar thing for most people. I want to make it about your calendar, yeah. right? So when you feel overwhelmed, and here's why. If you know selling another thing to somebody is going to create more chaos in your business, you just won't sell. When people mm-hmm. are like, oh, I'm having a hard time with marketing and sales... Most of the time when I look under the hood, it's not that you have a marketing and sales problem is you're not being consistent. You're not doing the work because you're scared to actually be successful, right? There's three fears, the fear of failure, the fear of judgment, and the fear of success. Most people don't realize they're scared of being successful. And because of that, they sabotage their potential for growth. So if you follow the buyback loop, which is audit, transfer, fill, first thing we do is a time and energy audit. We look at your calendar and say, what are the things that take your energy that are low value that are, that are, like you said, just doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And then once we do that audit over a two week period, we just grab all that stuff, put it somewhere else, either we, the four D's, right. We give it to somebody else. We delete it. We defer it. We delegate it. And then that frees up our time to then be smart about, you know, so we transfer it. So it's audit. Or time for time and energy, transfer, give it to somebody else. And I teach how to do that in a way that doesn't end up coming back on you or falling short and creating a bunch of chaos. Yeah. And then Phil is focusing on what do you do with that free time now that you found it? See, most people they they hire somebody and they got this free time and they do what you said. They they go on their couch and they watch Netflix or they sit there on their phone in between meetings and they scroll TikTok, or they, you know, they their friend calls them up to go do lunch and then that's the rest of their day. They're they're gone, right? My whole thing is you want to fill it with things that, that develop one of three areas, your skills, right? What's the next level? What's the skill that's missing that's stopping you from getting to the next level of growth? You should have a learning development plan design. And anytime you learn a new skill, you go to the next skill. Yeah. The other area is your beliefs, right? Most people don't realize it. Nobody will create more in their life than they feel they deserve. Like, Unless you feel like you earned it and you deserve it and you have self-worth, you will self-sabotage. There's this thermostat in your body that will cool yourself down, right? So what are the worldviews? What are the beliefs, right? What are the mindset monsters that you are holding on to that if you believe there's, it's impossible for you to grow, right? If you think having a team means more pain, guess what? You'll never hire people, which means you'll never have more capacity, which means you will never be able to sell more than what you got right now even if you raise your prices, which means you'll always be stuck in the business. So we got to work through the mindset beliefs. And then the third part is character traits, right? What are the character traits of somebody that is operating at a higher level? If you're at 100 grand a year and you want to get to a million, you got to ask yourself, what is a million person year creation type person? What are their character traits? Are they Think about what they're not. Some people have a hard time. What should I work on? Well, think about what they're not. They're not somebody that says they're going to do something and doesn't do it. They're not somebody that is inconsistent. They're not somebody that an alcoholic, you know, or substance abuser has a ton of devices. They're not somebody that is emotionally unhinged. There's all these things they're not. So if you have any of those, what I call the five time assassins, then you got to work on those character traits you got to overcome them. And that's the buyback loop. Anytime you hit the pain line, you go back to the process, audit your time for energy and, and costs, transfer it off to somebody else, reinvest in skills, beliefs and character traits and keep building.
1: Yeah, I feel like the beliefs part, that's deep.
0: That stops everybody. That's why most yeah. of the book is attacking, literally I wrote down 25 names of people that I know really well entrepreneurs that struggle with sure. their time and then I wrote about them indirectly through the book to address the beliefs and the words they use and the scenarios that they were experiencing to show people how to rethink those scenarios.
1: Yeah, I just feel like that's it's something I've come you know, across other people that have really struggled with that. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs to a certain degree potentially have gone through that. And I don't know what that would be from. I personally haven't felt certain things of that nature, but I've met several people in other mastermind groups that they don't feel like the worthiness of, or they are self-sabotaging one way or the other and and are trying to like not doing the things that they know should work or trying those things for some reason. Like they get their mentors to tell them, hey, do this. And for some reason, they're neglecting to do that from something deep within, you know, themselves of growing up or something. I don't know what it's, it really, you know, stems from. But I, I just think it's everybody's situation is probably slightly different. when it Completely
0: comes to different. Yeah. Literally. I mean it can be is dynamic. I have one of my private clients, she's world-class at delegating at work and sure. having other people support, okay? Yeah. At home different. And really? when you actually unpack it, I remember she's like, "You know, I I hear you about the house manager. I know I need to get some support at home. This is a very high-end eight-figure, you know, CEO." And at the last chapter in my book, it's called the buyback lifestyle, right? Like how do sure. you apply these principles in your home? Yeah. And I couldn't get past it. She was stuck. And when I asked the questions, I got to the point where she realized that her fear was other people thinking she was incompetent if bills didn't get paid around her home. right? Because that's not a normal business. If somebody doesn't pay something out of my business, they're going to contact the finance department. They're going to sort it, but they're not going to think the CEO couldn't deal with it. But at their home, they were like, well, if I don't pay the babysitter, if I don't pay my property tax, if I don't pay whatever, they're going to think I'm incompetent. And that's why I've not let that part go. Right. And that showed up in a bunch of different areas of like, you know, if I have somebody else, you know, taking my kids to a doctor appointment, I just feel like a horrible mom or whatever. And then we just worked through it. And we literally said, you know, is this true? And it's, you know, it's fascinating because I think at, at new levels, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at. To get to the next level, there's a ceiling you're gonna run into, what I call a complexity ceiling, and you know, new levels, new devil, and you've got to unpack what is it that's got me stopped here and what's the new identity that I need to connect with to become the person who can do with more, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because what happens is and Jim Rohn used to talk about this often. He said, you know, if we took all the money in the world and gave it out to every person evenly, right? To the 7 or 8 billion people. The truth is is within two or three years, it would be back in the hands of the same people that had it originally. The reason why is just because you have money doesn't mean you have become the person who knows how to retain, manage, and create that kind of money. So because you don't know that and you aren't that person, you will make decisions that will cause you to depart that resource. And the people that know how to acquire that resource will acquire it back. Does that make sense? Yes.
1: It does yeah. it's
0: fascinating for me to think. It's like people don't realize is you need to become the person who can deal with higher level problems or what I call factors of ten problems, right? Ten dollars problems, hundred dollars problems, thousand dollars problems, ten thousand dollars problems. Like you should invite those problems so that you now have a worthy opponent to learn from to get to the next level by learning how to make this just the norm,
1: yeah, that's good. I remember a couple of years ago when we were like starting to grow our business more, Jen and I we started delegating a lot of things like, You know, cleaning our house, washing the dishes, walking our dogs, you know, getting the dogs like bathed or vet visits, washing the car, stuff like that. And I remember even getting like our laundry done and so forth and having my assistant do it. And I remember my mom finding that out and she was so disappointed. She was like, she was so mad at me for a while. And I just remembered thinking, like, she was like, how dare you make your assistant. You know, do that. So it was pretty, it was pretty mind blowing. Just the mindset shifts, but knowing where we had to go to be able to grow this, it was very important. Well, I think this is crazy. I, I'm very thankful for your time today. I know you got to go in just a moment. Do you mind sharing how people can get a hold of you, how to get the book? And uh,
0: yeah, follow- the best place is Instagram. So Instagram, 2 the Martell, Dan Martell. I'm Dan Martell on all social platforms. Instagram's <laughs> the best. I put out I think two or three reels every day on buyback principle ideas. You can go to Amazon to get the book, go to your local retailer. It's it's in all physical bookstores as well. But Instagram is the best. And if you're listening to this and you go check it out, just let me know you heard me through Brandon in the podcast. I'd love... To connect with you and, and just be helpful. I've got templates for executive assistants and house managers and all that fun stuff. And again, I'm just here to create a movement and make the buyback principle just like default language for all entrepreneurs to get their time back so they can go create more. I want them yeah. to unlock their ability to, to do, right?
1: Yeah. Get that time freedom. I love it. Well, I appreciate you greatly, guys. Make sure you reach out to Dan and buy that book. It's going to be changing your life in so many different ways. Uh, if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments, facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. Otherwise, if you're looking to learn more about credit, check out creditcounselelite.com. We'll show you how to be able to get up to 500k every six months at 0% interest. So next time, guys, God bless. Dan, appreciate you, brother. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Brandon. Have a great one. Cheers. See you guys. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.